All right, we are rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey there, Misketeers. Welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies or music, television, spoken word, books, experiences, things that have built us up as people. And we hope that in sharing it, it builds you up. We are the retrospective that is introspective. Yeah, you know, that was beautiful, man. That that intro really feels like it was personal. It came from the heart. Like your your personality, your soul came through. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to steal that podcast intro. And I'm going to market it. I'm going to give it to my, my Beach Boys knockoffs. And they are going to pervert your beautiful podcast intro. And then you are going to have to put on a big hat and wreak your vengeance. Yes, thank you. I would like that. First, could you, uh, I don't know... Uh, stage a crime for me um bro i always stage crimes for you thank you you're like uh, my stage crimes for guy oh that's really sweet i'm like curling my hair in my finger oh <laughs> um so this week we're talking about the 1974 cult classic phantom of the paradise it is a brian de palma film starring a bunch of people whose names i have not written down (laughs) um well it stars uh william finley paul williams jessica harper yes those names are the stars lex uh you brought this to me i did um so can you pitch this to the people at home and also to me? Tell me, tell me, what is Why it? Why did you what? make me watch this? Yeah. Yeah, all right. It's like that. Boo. Okay, so I'm a big fan of this movie, and Tari, I'm sure, as you were watching it, maybe there were a couple of times you went, oh, yeah, I get it. He likes this. No, I get it. Um, so uh, from one of the great American filmmakers and one of the great American singer-songwriters comes this absolutely batshit weirdo oddity from the uh, early mid-70s, Phantom of the Paradise, a story that is part Faust, part uh, Dorian Gray, part Phantom of the Opera. Uh, It's got a ton of songs by Paul Williams, who is, uh, I mean, he wrote, like, you know Paul Williams, you familiar? No. Okay, well, you're definitely, if you don't know his name, you are absolutely familiar with his work. Uh, He is the gentleman who, uh, among, among many, many, many other songs, wrote Rainbow Connection and all of the other songs from the Muppet movie. Uh, so two of them got together and they made this this musical that was really hard to see for a while. And just in the last, you know, handful of years has become more accessible and people can see this sort of, uh, it's this interesting cult oddity full of music that I think like, in my opinion, every fucking song in this thing is a banger. I don't know how you feel about the music. I'm a big fan of this soundtrack, uh, but it's just so aggressively weird and you see all of uh, these stylistic flourishes that would appear in De Palma's work going forward. Um, I think it's a really interesting, fascinating, fun, funny, goofy piece of filmmaking. Um, and I, I love that it's now widely available because it, in much the same way that it, uh, in much the same way that Rocky Horror Picture Show does, it sort of appeals very specifically and directly to kind of like that niche weirdo cult midnight 
audience. Right. And I am a fan of Rocky Horror Picture Show, but honestly, I think what people really get out of that, the people that are the like kind of diehard Rocky Horror fans, I feel like Phantom of the Paradise is that movie for me. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I dig this movie a ton. And having said that, uh, Brian De Palma, and I'll just get right out ahead of this. Brian De Palma I, is uh, absolutely, in my opinion, one of uh, the great American filmmakers. Of course, uh, you know, after this, he went on to make what he did. Uh, 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 Carrie, he did Dress to Kill, he did Blowout, he did Scarface, he did The Untouchables. Uh, he's also, if you look at his subject matter and the way he approaches some of that subject matter, uh, he's one of our more arguably problematic Filmmakers in terms of content, I think, of course, uh, of Dress to Kill, uh, which I think is a masterfully made movie, but also the last sort of section of that movie directly conflates being trans with also being inclined towards uh, homicidal mania. Mm. Stuff like that. Stuff that I think is more a byproduct of the way certain uh, topics were discussed at that time. You know, as opposed to anything he necessarily was carrying around hatefully in his own heart and stuff. Right. But those elements are definitely prevalent throughout his work. And now this is not uh, as uh, uh, egregious an offender in that respect, although you can point to certainly the characterization of Beef, who's very much, it was intended to be a send up of glam rock more than a joke at the expense of, of gay people. But obviously the character is played so flamboyant, so over the top that now it, you, I could totally understand somebody just taking a look at that that character before looking at any other part of the movie and going, oh, yeesh. Interesting, because I think for me, the problematic aspects were more um, like, I guess there's this casting couch aspect of uh, them dealing with the singers. Yes. Um, in the first five minutes, I think it's the um, the Philbin character who uses the term gook, mm-hmm. um, which is yikes. Um, there's another, like one of the band dudes. Oh, during the opening number, one of the band dudes like assaults this lady. Like he just walks out and then he's like, oh, I'm going to like slam you on a table and try to do a sex with you. And she like leaves indignantly. And you're like, why is this happening? Right. So, yes, I, obviously all of that stuff is there and all that stuff is deeply problematic. <laughs> but all of that is baked into the story and the characters. Right. Like you're talking about like the Philbin character is a piece of shit. Like in the text of the story, he's a piece of shit. Swan, who at one point uh, very casually throws out a, a very derogatory term that refers to gay people. Uh, he's he's the villain of the piece. You know what I mean? Like it's not like you have your ostensible hero running around using slurs and stuff. So that's like, and the casting couch is obviously gross and horrifying, but it's sort of the villains of the piece that are engaging in that behavior. Whereas say like the characterization of, of beef, even though it's a, it's a specific, it's making fun of a specific sort of uh, style of, of pop music. Uh, I feel like that is one where just on a meta level now plays a little differently than it might have back then. Whereas the rest of the, the stuff that you're referring to, yeah, obviously that's all there and it's problematic as hell, but it's, it, it is part of the sort of story that's being told in a way that that you know through a modern prism maybe that performance would sort of run people the wrong way and i don't have a particular issue with it because the thing came out in 1974 different time but i could see how maybe some people would bump up against that right yeah well i think it's going to be hard to really talk about this thing without getting into spoilers because i have a lot of spoilery thoughts 
Cool. Um, um, so yeah, then I would say, I feel like just general plot, right? It's basically Phantom of the Opera meets uh, Faust meets Dorian Gray. And then, yeah, that that director who, again, like problematic, though some of his content is, he's one of the directors that sort of came out of the same generation, the same scene as uh, Coppola and George Lucas, who was a good friend of his, and Martin Scorsese. And he was one of the guys that really helped shape what film was at that time. Um, and his movies are, he's one of the more influential directors as far as sort of uh, now people that are making big, like people like Noah Baumbach is a huge De Palma fan. Tarantino's a massive De Palma fan. Um, but then of course, Paul Williams, Muppet movie songs, everybody loves the Muppet movie songs. So if nothing else, I feel like people will be able to get into the soundtrack, even if they're like, what is this weirdo shit? Um, so yeah, then beyond that, we gotta, we gotta talk spoilers. Cause I wanna, yeah. I wanna get, I wanna get it. I wanna know, because this is one of those movies for me that I, if I'm stressed out or I can't focus or whatever, I just throw on. And I start to feel better. Okay. So I want to know why you why you're burning with hate. I'm not. I want to know why you're hate. angry. Um, you know what? Before we get past the spoiler <laughs> wall, I will just say that um, I don't. I think that I don't have any particular issue with the movie. It's it doesn't have like it, it didn't hit me in that I was like, oh my gosh, best thing ever. I think yeah. like for the most part. I think my main barrier of entry is it felt uh, almost like a, a student film at some points. <laughs> I mean, um, in it, it certainly wasn't De Palma's first feature, but it you can it does feel very much like okay, we're trying stuff out, and it does also. There are a couple of points where, like, you see these really glaringly obvious matte effects. Yeah, that there's a reason that there yeah, are yeah. there. Yeah, we'll get which we can talk about, but um, I see what you're referring to. And I will also add that even though I'm a massive fan of this movie now, I know the first time I saw it, I was like, I like the songs, I guess. I don't really know what to do with the rest of this. <laughs> and it just grew on me. Right. Um, and I think that it just, there's a lot that happens in this movie and it all happens fairly quickly in quick succession. Well, and what's interesting too is the first half of this movie like moves and then the second half of the movie, the pacing changes completely right and then you have it which almost feels like if you don't know that that's coming it's very jarring like around the midpoint of the movie it's just like you've been going 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 okay it's almost like you hit a, a wall yeah in a car yeah there's a very specific moment and i think that was also one of the turning points for me where i was like oh i thought this was going to be a different movie um so, so we got to talk about it so we, we got to go talk about spoilers it. Um, so we're about to drop down the spoiler wall. If you haven't seen Phantom of the Paradise, you can find it on Shutter. Um, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on uh, it. It's if you have Hulu Live, you can watch it on Hulu as well. Um, so it's heavily available, as Lex was saying. Also, Shout Factory put out a really great two-disc Blu-ray, which is how I watch it. Which is, if you like the movie, they did a really amazing job cleaning it up, and there's a ton, ton, ton of additional uh, stuff on there. Yeah. So, uh, also, if you feel so inclined, uh, drop by the iTunes store, or now it's Apple Podcasts, either one. Um, and if you would like to you can leave us a rating or a review five star reviews we will read on this show uh let us know what you think about what we're doing things that you want from us um things that you just the things that made you laugh um you know just so we can take your feedback in and feel good about ourselves but also helps us get to the top of the charts 
uh, as you know, the most potent form of marketing is a word of mouth. So uh, we'd appreciate that. Uh, and we will be back right after this message. Can Harry Potter cast a spell on Black Widow's heart? Would the doctor and Niles Crane write a prescription for love? Do Cthulhu and Godzilla have compatible genitals? These are the questions you should be ashamed for asking. But if you want answers, listen to Ships in the Night. It's a fanfic podcast where we put two fictional characters into a relationship. And figure out what would happen if they bumped uglies. Ships in the Night. Listen every Tuesday. But listen quietly. It's super not safe for work. All right, we are back, and we're going to be talking spoilers, baby. Ooh, you ready to talk spoilers, Lex Michael? Oh, boy. Um, so this movie, mm-hmm. um, if I were to try to succinctly, uh, I guess, parse uh, what the plot was. Okay. Basically, a character name. Well, there is a, a big record producer named swan everyone swan. wants to get in front of swan mm-hmm. oh boy um and so uh as he's auditioning people to open up his new club called the paradise uh he he sees winslow leech and he's performing his his cantata of faust and uh swan decides that he's gonna steal it from him mm-hmm. and so he has his little errand boy philbin take his cantata and then ban him from ever talking, ban Winslow from talking to him again. And then they're like making it a thing. Uh, so Winslow tries to get into the auditions. He gets sent to jail and beat up and then he gets his teeth ripped out. Um, and then in his fit of rage, he escapes from prison, uh, gets his face burned and his windpipes crushed as he's trying to destroy all the records. Uh, and then he, in his dizzy, uh, deformed state of mind, he goes to the paradise and dons a mask and a cloak and then tries to blow some motherfuckers up. And then the movie comes to a weird halt where um, Swan's like, hey, what's up? I've been expecting you. Uh, let's do some music together. And instead of being like, I'm going to kill you right now. He's like, okay, it's neat. It's because it's because he wants his music out there. Yeah. And that's where it, it becomes this sort of Faustian uh, deal with the devil scenario. Right. Uh, yeah. Cause keep, keep going. This is great. Yeah. Uh, so Swan's like, yo, I can give you a voice. Uh, we just got to put you in this little chamber. We give you a, a, a like a Darth Vader style voice box and then uh, you just write for me, and I totally, 100% won't take advantage of you. Just sign this contract in blood. Come on, baby, just sign this contract. And he's like, what do these things mean? And he's like, oh, it's to take care of you, honey. I love one of my favorite bits in the movie is, is uh, it's like all articles uh, included and not included. And he's just like, what does that mean? He's like, it's to protect you, Winslow. Mm-hmm. Also, the bit of physical business where uh, Swan moves around him, like from one shoulder to the other. But because uh, Winslow in the helmet only has one eye that he can see out of, he turns to look at him and he's not there. And then he has to turn the other way. Uh-huh. It's just a little nothing bit of business that I get a huge kick out of every yeah. time. Um, anyway, keep, this is great. <laughs> Thanks. You, just, you, you telling me movies I like, 
I, I'm getting a lot of mileage off of. I mean, I think that, well, yes. I just feel like, especially if someone is listening to this and they haven't seen it in a while, and they're like, yeah, I, I vaguely remember what happened. This is like, and it's also just me trying to like verbalize how I feel and how what yeah. I saw. And make sure you got it all straight and stuff. Right. And so like after they make their deal, it's like this montage of him like composing his cantata again for some reason, specifically for this lady named Phoenix who refused to be cast and couched. And he like they sang together when he was trying to uh, audition or when she was trying to audition. Uh, And then uh, the swan is like, hmm. I don't like people who are perfect. I only like people who I like. And so he gets beef because beef has a more rocky style to him. Uh, And so then, but it's weird because it's like he knew that the styles wouldn't fit, but he's like, you know what? I like sabotage. Ooh. Part of it, part of it's definitely sabotage, and part of it is uh, throughout the movie. So Swan has this band uh, that uh, shows up in three different incarnations. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning is the Juicy Fruits. Towards the middle of the movie is the Beach Bums, I believe, and then I, I think they might just be called the Dead in the sort of final number that they perform. Right. But that's the Swans house band. And each time they show up, they're sort of aping a very commercial genre of popular music, same as they are with Beef. And Swans' whole thing throughout the movie is taking Winslow's music, which is super personal to him. It's an, it's an artistic statement uh, on the part of the artist and just taking it, twisting it and turning it into something that's more crass and more commercial. And, and Beef is sort of that taken to the fullest extreme. Right. You know what my favorite part about the beach bums are? Um, Don't pay attention to my grammar. Uh, But my favorite part is that when they were the beach bums, they all were dressed like Winslow. (laughs) And they had like little, little, little blonde wigs and glasses like Winslow. And it's like, this is, it's, it, it would be a weird thing to walk into. I guess symbolism is that like, they are they they have the form that he once had and now he's a deformed monster and it's like looking into a warped mirror symbolism Ooh, (laughs) you guys lack symbolism carburetors man yeah that's Uh. what life is all about (laughs) um but yeah and so then it, it it starts diving into this like really supernatural tale that from the moment that like uh the phantom formerly winslow leach sees uh swan and phoenix together uh he like tries to take his own life and then swan's like oh, ha, 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 we have a deal oh, ho, ho, ho. you can't die unless i die and well, i can't die unless ooh, you will never know and that's it's late in the movie that you get this obviously if you're familiar with faust you know that that swan is is essentially the devil but yeah at this point in the movie it becomes more explicit that paul williams is not only playing swan the insidious record producer but yeah he's also literally playing the devil incarnate right so uh yeah i uh that and that's how the movie goes i think the yeah and i had mentioned before that it felt overall oh you didn't even you didn't even follow through to the ending where you get this giant 
concert sequence uh, where Swan plans to marry Phoenix on national television. Yeah, I'll talk about that once we get to it. Once I like really start talking about beef. Um, Fair enough. Okay, so then, uh, yeah, let's... But like, generally, I think my my big, again, barrier to entry is just the the really big performance of Winslow um, that is juxtaposed to everyone who's fairly like mild mannered and like they all have like their own distinct personalities but like Winslow is the only one who's like I'm big and sweeping Um, well it's interesting that you say that because I feel like even though you're you're right he's definitely playing it closer to a 10 I think um, than some of the other actors in the movie. I think he's very much in the same movie as Paul Williams. It's just Paul Williams gets to be a little bit more collected. Right. Um, and he doesn't quite make the the giant, but also too, like at a certain point, once Bill Finley is in the costume, uh, you really do have to rely on big physicality to get your performance across. Right. Some of that is present before he makes that transition. But yeah, once he's in the suit, you basically have to go really big and so i i totally get what you are referring to i don't disagree that it's there but it's just i get so much enjoyment out of these really really big performance choices that like he does have to make right um and part of the sort of bigness of that performance right it's not just in the choices that that bill finley is making it's also everything about that the phantom character once he becomes the phantom character is so big and so theatrical and so over the top like down to i think it's really great and appropriate that you referred to it you made the comparison to it's like a darth vader style voice box and actually if you look at his outfit as the phantom a lot of it really does look like stripped down darth vader aesthetic right so brian de palma and george lucas were good friends and George Lucas was making Star Wars just a couple years after this. Brian De Palma was somebody that he would go to for feedback. Brian De Palma actually, if I'm not very much mistaken, helped George Lucas write the final version of the opening crawl for Star Wars. Oh, so there's that connection there, and that could be total coincidence. But I do think, like I, I observed the same thing when I first saw this movie. I'm like, oh, he's kind of, he's like got a Darth Vader chic mm-hmm. happening, and then you make that connection where it's like, oh, but like they're also good buddies and stuff, right? Um, so, um, and, and I think that I also have a, this is more of a personal taste thing, but like comedy of errors, like they always bother me. Um, (laughs) How do you, how do you mean? And so, well, so specifically this, and it's not even like a comedy of errors. It's more like a, a very specific plot against the main character. Where like he uh, they you know they take his stuff and he goes into the office and they're like never talk to this guy again he he fucking sucks eat a dick um, and then yeah I love that he comes into the office and they they've got a card under his name that just says never to be seen mm-hmm. in big letters uh, and then uh, like when he gets to the the auditions big heavy quotes like they put him in the orgy room uh, and it, and I don't. I don't understand why they put him in the orgy room. Um, to be honest, I don't completely understand why they put him in the orgy room either. 
Yeah, like maybe they were like, "Yeah, you got you got long hair, boss." Maybe into it. Well, honestly, it is it is possible that that was part of their thinking, right? Like in the in the that scene, we're in that room with the girls before Swan shows up, and they're all sitting and talking to each other. Yeah. And the reveal that Winslow is there is pretty gradual. Like we're paying attention to these girls, and then we sort of glide over to uh, just the, the back of another head that has long hair that's fairly indistinguishable. Then it turns, and it's Winslow wearing the like footy pajamas. Right. Who gave him the footy pajamas is the real question. I'd like to imagine there's just a big closet where it's like, yo, baby, put on your size and lay in the bed. Make sure you ain't got no bras on and make sure you use makes out at some point. Um, I I also wonder, I also wonder, too, maybe it's just uh, to kind of give Winslow a taste of this sort of uh, uh, what do you call it? Dennis. Sex medicine, yeah, so you, like not, but not even like just a taste of the what what Swan gets to have, for example, what Swan is going to get to have more of on the back of Winslow's music, just to be like, hey, isn't it nice? Fuck out of here, right? Because they do after that beat him up, and then they have which here. So here's a weird thing that I didn't like: um, the idea that two black cops would place drugs on a person is interesting isn't it yes it's a choice it is it it's a choice because like it in case you you at home aren't familiar uh that was a common occurrence that white cops would place drugs on black people so that they could put them in jail because black people were seen as people who needed to be caged they wanted to separate them from society it's the prison industrial system oh my gosh there's a lot of shit happening it's layered um so this idea that these two black cops are like oh damn yo Let's get this motherfucker into jail using this smack I found. Ooh, damn, look at us. We black and we we framing this white guy. Um, really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, I think that's understandable. But the, the, the idea is that Swan owns the police officers, and then he's sent to a Swan-owned correctional facility that takes people's Teeth, right? Like this, this prison doctor tells everybody that teeth are a, a source of infectious disease, and so we're going to all of you volunteers. Uh, we're going to be taking your teeth. And Winslow's like, "I didn't volunteer. Please don't take my teeth. Please don't take my teeth." Is is uh, a line uttered in this movie? Yep, it's it's one of the best lines. They're like, "Please don't take my teeth out." And so, and but they replaced them with like metal teeth yeah i guess like metal veneers like kind of like uh jaws in the bond movies okay no nothing no, no, i got nothing uh richard keel uh plays uh, a sort of iconic henchman in the spy who loved me in moonraker his name is jaws he's like this giant indestructible brute but his sort of trademark his gimmick are that he has these indestructible metal teeth so he can like bite through steel cables and stuff like that oh that's cool i guess I mean, I mean, I really li- I like Richard Keel's jaws. Sure. I just like I want to know because I'm, I'm reasonably confident that that wasn't a character from the novels. I might be mistaken, but I, I'm just wondering, like, whether it was or it wasn't when that character was developed. At what point in the conversation where they like needs a gimmick? Oh, sh- um, we did hat. We did throwing hat. Uh, <laughs> shit. Uh, we did a guy with a hook hand. Um, damn. Uh, t- I know strong ass teeth 
And they're like, fuck yeah. And they just start cashing checks immediately. They're buying themselves new cars and stuff because they know it's going to be a hit. And they were right because uh-huh. people love indestructible teeth. They do. Um, you know, my, my shiny teeth and me. Yeah, na, 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 na. <laughs> it's a song from uh, it's a song from Fairly Odd Parents. Uh, I believe it's Justin Timberlake uh, as a pop star, and it's called "My Shiny Teeth and Me." It doesn't matter. None of this is important. So, um, but yeah, I um, I I also so after he gets his teeth pulled out, he then uh, finds out, I guess, via radio that his his cantata is being stolen and it be initiates the wackiest escape I've seen. And it, I think this is emblematic of like the aesthetic pieces that don't resonate with me in that there's a lot of like screwball fast forwarding and yeah. like, um, and it's just shot weird. And so like, at this point, he they they basically vaudeville fast forward him through shaking someone and then jumping in a, into a box and then the box falls off a truck. Right. So, <laughs> okay. So first of all, I love the implication that he could have escaped from Sing Sing at any time if he just got mad enough. Right. Which I really like. It's so very silly. Uh, but I also like that his escape involves him in relatively plain sight jumping into a cardboard box that's on a conveyor belt the box gets loaded onto a truck then just happens to fall off of the truck in in just the city somewhere and he's able to run to the factory to try and sabotage it and then of course ends up uh becoming terribly disfigured but yeah we start to we start to play with uh well started he's playing with form uh all over the place in this movie and i think it's interesting i I don't know that i would compare it necessarily to a, a student film but i do think I, I agree with what I think you're perceiving or I agree with the presence of what I think you're perceiving in as much as, yeah, like throughout this movie, he's trying so many different things in terms of form and technical execution. And some of them are things that would go on to become staples of his. Like I think uh, specifically about the Beach Bums sequence where uh, Winslow first sort of like attacks the paradise and bombs the stage car. Uh, that whole sequence plays out in split screen. And it's all happening at the same time. He's got multiple cameras set up, but split screen became a a De Palma trademark. And I will say like that whole sequence, I think is really masterfully executed um, in terms of how he's able to tell that story in split screen and have everything make sense. It's a little overwhelming. There's a lot happening, but Mm -hmm. um, have it all trackable, have it all make sense, I think is really impressive. And then there are certain things where, um, you know, occasionally they'll break the fourth wall. Like, I think it feels very much like during Phoenix's audition song, she's sort of singing directly to us and like looking right down the camera. Right. And that doesn't necessarily happen anywhere else in the movie. Uh, we've got, I guess you could, beef sort of looks down the camera at several points, I suppose, but still, so an extension of that, you're, you occasionally break the fourth wall. He does the, the sequence you referenced earlier where Winslow is, finally making his return to the paradise, uh, you get this sequence that's all in POV. And actually, now I'm not 100% sure that this is the case, but I would assume that this was the inspiration for the opening of Halloween that John Carpenter would make a couple years after this, because that opening is very much, uh, very much the same insofar as you've got your sort of uh, POV sinister figure Mm -hmm. where you kind of hear them breathing. And then uh, that a big sort of key 
moment in that POV sequence is when they take a mask and kind of layer it over the POV vision. Right. Um, now, I it could just be a coincidence. I'm, I'm sure that Brian De Palma is not the only person alive who could have come up with that idea. But I, I do think it's interesting that it feels so very, very much like the opening of Halloween that would happen a couple years later. Yeah. Um, but but point being, yes, very much playing with, with form, playing around with pacing. Um, it just feels like he's He's just making choices. Right. And like I said, yeah, some of that sticks, and uh, you know, formally throughout the, the rest of his career, and some of it not necessarily. Uh, but it is interesting to see how some of these elements cohere, how maybe some of them don't, and how your mileage may vary yeah. on those. Yeah. I mean, I think that, like, I can, I definitely feel the experimental aspect. This was, this was one of his very early movies. And so, like, I could definitely see him kind of, having these images in his head and really trying to make them coalesce and then uh, kind of looking back and being like, I really liked this and I really like that. So I'm going to use those moving forward and these things, meh, not so much. So like I let them live in this movie forever, but like, uh, you know, I did it. I made, I did the thing. Right. Um, so I totally get that. Um, it, yeah. It, it, <laughs> um, yeah. 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 I get it. I get it. Lex. Lex. Listen. Yeah. yeah. Listen. Yeah. Are you listening? Yes. I get it. Oh. Yeah. Do you? I do. Okay. I understand. <laughs> um, so you talked about the, the musical numbers. And so um, I know that this is specifically like a, a rock opera um, or rock pop opera. One of those I'll two. I'll take it. Um, and so, and it definitely plays like that, where like everything kind of comes to a halt the moment that someone starts singing and they're like, look at this performance. Ooh, look at them doing that singies. Ooh, boy. Um, and I, I, I thought that was fun in a, in a, in a certain way um, because you got to just, like those are the moments where you're not you you just like stop thinking about like the plot and you're like all right this person's doing a good they're they're like performing their butts off right and it it makes sense insofar as like yes you could argue that uh we do sort of stop and focus on the performance but it is a, a story that's about a rock club and i like that you're able to incorporate all these musical numbers but for the most part it's it, it could be occurring in world. There are only a couple instances of uh, musical numbers in the movie that are essentially internal monologue. Yeah. You know, and, and Winslow has a couple of those, but for the most part, it's all, we call it like a diegetic in a way. Yeah. Um, so yes. Um, but how do you feel about the music in this movie? I'm a big fan of the songs in this. I'm a, I think Paul Williams is uh, pretty, pretty good at what he does. Um, and also knowing coming into this movie, being very familiar with the Muppet movie, of course, like a lot of people, even if you didn't grow up as a Muppets kid, uh-huh. everybody everybody knows Rainbow Connection. You know what I mean? Like everybody knows probably a couple of those songs would ring a bell to them. And going into, are you making this thing? You're making this thinky face like you don't know Rainbow Connection. I'm trying like to remember really, if I know it. It's that you're hurting me. Um, you you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Right? Why are there so many songs about rainbows? Good question, Paul. Um, but I was obviously like I'm, I I was a Muppet kid and so right. coming into this movie knowing Paul Williams from that and then seeing like oh like you're just not only are you giving this real fucking weirdo performance but writing these songs that I think you're playing with a bunch of different genres that I, I 
didn't know Paul Williams really played in necessarily. You're mm-hmm. aping a bunch of different styles. And I also think once your ear sort of flips over into what he's doing, I think just about every song in this is also catchy as hell. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I like, because I'm a musical guy, I really liked the the heart of what found, like, like you get little pieces, like you never get the whole katata, cantata of Faust, but like you, you get a sense of like what it feels like and some of the lyrics and how, uh, how much this guy put into it. And so like, I think that, uh, there were moments where I was like, I would love just like a, a Faust musical. Like that would be dope. Yeah. Just take, take all these pieces and like make it, um, so I think that like of the renditions of the fa- pieces of Faust that we got, um, I really liked the original piano version. Um, and I also kind of liked Beef's version. <laughs> he really goes for it. Um, he does. Um, and I think that I kind of liked Phoenix's version. Um, like she's, it seemed, it felt like she was singing a different song that was, I mean, they are all like the second part, they were all made for her, right. but like that felt like it was made for her. Um, yes, but it felt different than the other songs. Sure. Um, but I liked how into it she was. Right. Um, and also, that, yeah, oh, sorry. To, and I just want to shout out like Jessica Harper, I think is amazing in this movie. I think this was maybe her first I mean, her credit is introducing Jessica Harper, so I assume this was her first big movie. Right. Uh, she's probably best known, she's definitely best known for uh, Dario Argento's Suspiria, which she did after this. Okay. But I, she's doing her own vocals and stuff, and like I think she absolutely kills it. Yeah. Um, I think she did a great job. I also liked even just that little moment when they were harmonizing. Um, that part was also really, uh, really nice, and aesthetically and musically. Um so yeah, the the music wasn't too bad. I, I wasn't a fan of the opening number. I I really like the parts that are sung, and most of that opening number is this extended monologue that uh, the lead singer of the Juicy Fruits does in a highly questionable accent. Yes, <laughs> yeah. But I like the parts that are actually sung mm-hmm. a bunch. Um, yeah. So that's that's those that's how I felt about the music, which. Let, let's talk about beef for a little bit. Let's talk about beef for a little bit. Um, I know that the the depiction of beef is... I, I think it's, it's less specifically the, the depiction of beef. And it's how beef is treated um, that I feel is the most problematic. But, like, I felt like beef, for the time, was a fairly like progressive type character. Like, I'm familiar with glam rock. So I was like, I get what they're doing. Um, and I never, I like it, it felt like it was never really, um, settling on his sexuality. Mm. Um, so he could have been straight, gay, like somewhere in between. Um, I know that at some point his like face tattoo or face, the uh, I don't know, paint is like a male, female symbol. So like, who knows? Right. Um, but I liked I'd liked the inclusion of that character in that um, the, the actor playing him uh, was, was really like 
into the character. Yeah, uh, um, Garrett Graham. And he talks about on the one of the bonus features on the Shout Factory disc, talks about how the antler belt that he wears, uh-huh. like that was something he and I think the costume designer came up with together and they just got so much mileage off of that antler belt. They just <laughs> thought it was the greatest thing. Um, it was pretty dope. Because um, I loved how it was, how, thre- how he used it to threaten um, Filmer, Philbin. Um, so like, I think that the character himself um, was really interesting. And I like that he specifically is like, hey, hey, this isn't written for me. And me making it my own defeats the purpose of it. And they're like, just fucking throw it. Hey, I'm from New York. I don't know where this takes place. Um, What's wild, though, is like, is how swan and it's paul williams and paul williams is just is uh you know he's not he's not super tall and he seems you know he's uh he has like his friendly demeanor about him mm-hmm. but he plays swan with such casual vicious malevolence yeah like the way he sort of encourages beef to make it his own is he literally just very casually in front of a, a room full of women just looks right at him and goes you can do it better than any bitch and he beef's just like you know what yeah and uh, you know you, you sit there just 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 sort of soaking in the awfulness of the whole <laughs> fucking thing yeah and I, I love in that moment that it specifically pans over to phoenix who's she's like, like this is written for me and like she's literally just like oh just rolls her eyes and shit <laughs> yeah um yeah so uh and it it bummed me out that that character died um, cause it wasn't, it wasn't his fault. He like, he, he was like, I heeded your warning, right. but like Philbin is a jerk, butt. Philbin made me do it. Philbin uh, is a jerk, butt. yeah. And so then, uh, he essentially had to catch on fire, uh, and be electrocuted and die. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and that's also, I think the moment where finally, you know, Winslow has gone over the edge himself. And it's the moment where I think. Yes, he seals his fate when he signs the contract, but it's sort of when he, as a character in the narrative, ultimately seals his fate as far as when ultimately Winslow uh, dies at the end of the movie. In a way, he has now earned that for himself in a way that I don't think he necessarily had prior, even though, yes, he literally made a deal with the devil. So you could argue, well... Yeah, well, I mean, that I thought... Well, I, I feel like the moment he put dynamite in a car that people were sitting on was the moment where he kind of like started crossing that line. That's a good point. He blew up a car earlier in the movie. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, <laughs> I feel like that was the moment when he really, I was like, ah, and I think that I expected the, the movie to be more of that him, like doing, doing not bits, but like making a foul or mischief at the paradise, right, but like more fan of the opera type stuff. Right. But as soon as, he does that. Uh, Swan comes up and is like, let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. Right. Um, and then it just becomes like the first part of the movie, but with him in uh, a, like in, in a suit in a dome, um, which is like, all right, that's fine. Um, but I need to see some more phantoming. I need to see some more sabotage. I need, cause like, he should have been so much more reticent to to make a deal with this dude because he put him in jail yeah. and ripped out his teeth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I 
fool me once. <laughs> Shame on me. Right. Beat me up and put me in jail. Shame on you. Yeah. Fool me three times. I guess I die when you die. <laughs> I just, I think, yeah, it's, it is interesting that he would choose to go. Although at a certain point, at a certain point, Swan has stolen his music and as far as the rest of the world is concerned, like he was a he was a deviant and is dead now. So he can't really lay claim. It's not like he can take it somewhere else. So I guess I could and he's probably not thinking super clearly either. Uh, so I, I could see how, okay, well, I have to go back to the paradise specifically because that's basically where my music is now. And if I'm going to have any any claim to my music, the only way I'm going to be able to do it now is by ultimately partnering with the dude who destroyed my entire life. This is the only way I can get my music out there. Nah, bro. And he literally, but he's making a deal with, even if it wasn't so, if it wasn't so directly based on Faust, we'd be like, it's like Faust. Right. Yeah. Uh, but no, the, the actual solution, sorry, you're wrong, Lex. The real solution <laughs> is to kill Swan and then become Swan. You know, you're like, ah, uh, I I own the cameras now. Boom, boom. For yes, boom, for no. And then everyone's like, new new swan, so good. New swan never uh never casting couches us. New swan's so great. He just stays in his bubble. Yeah. We actually wish he'd come out more because we like his helmet. We think it's cool. <laughs> um because like as it is, Swan likes to stay behind glass and like doesn't make a lot of personal appearances. So he could have effectively just taken over for Swan, killed him, killed Philbin, and then been like, it's like released all of his information through like letters because Swan helped him get his voice. But he could have done that himself. Whatever. Right. He would have figured it out. <laughs> um, and then he would have been like, I am Swan now. Um, that's that's the ideal ending to this this movie. And they'd all be like, "Well, I don't want to argue with that guy." Do you? Yeah, no, not at all. Uh-uh. Um, but it, the the one issue with that is that it, killing Swan may not have worked because we find out that he made a deal with the devil. Um, to become eternally youthful. Yeah, there's this sequence where you see uh, Winslow finds a, a tape of Swan, like the real Swan before making the deal, announcing uh, that he is going to commit suicide because he wants to be young. For He doesn't want to age. He doesn't want to sort of like be demythologized by the passage of time. Right. And so the devil wearing his face shows up and basically says, so here's the deal. If you sign this, you can be eternally youthful. But part of that trade-off is that Dorian Gray style, this image, uh, this this kind of tape-recorded image is going to age in your place, and you have to watch the tape every day and, like, stare at this sort of what what is heavily implied to be this sort of gnarled, uh, withered visage of his. Right. Um, so... Y- I mean, really, I was going to say, you almost feel bad for him. You don't. No. You don't, really. There's really no, it's not like he even did a, like, you could almost sympathize with Winslow uh, as far as his rationale for making a deal with the devil, because it's like, this is my art. This is what gives me meaning, and this is how I can connect with with anything, uh, especially now, where my entire world has been destroyed. Swan's just like, I don't want to get old. Right. Which I think anybody could probably relate to, but man... And he was so, and also like he seemed so chill and resolved to be like, yeah, this is the end. Like, I just want to die looking like this so that everyone could be like, look how beautiful that corpse is. <laughs> um, like if the devil hadn't shown up, he would have just been like, 
all right, cool, 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 cool. Tight, tight, tight. Um, and now he has to be like, yo, I got to make other contracts with other people just cause like, it's fun, I guess. Um, which like, is it fun? Is it fun to make deals? Uh, it depends who you ask. Okay. I mean, I feel like if you're the devil, it's more fun to fuck with people. Right. And if they sign a contract, they can't be like, Hey, you fucked with me. <laughs> um, but, but is Swan prick. the devil or is he just like, once he made the contract, he's like, I guess I got to also do contracts because the devil likes doing stuff. Right. And that's the thing. There seems to be a little bit of ambiguity at times as to whether we're looking at Swan or we're looking at the de- like who's actually at the wheel. Like, are we right. looking at Swan or are we looking at the devil? But at a certain point, especially where Winslow is concerned, they're sort of inextricable from each other. Right. Um, I had read that uh, that Winslow... Uh, or the actor playing Winslow, uh, Bill Finley, yeah, uh, almost had his head crushed in that in the scene where the uh, where the record machine press is closing, and they they were like, "Don't worry about it. We put a couple chocolate blocks in the thing and there's some padding. Don't even worry about it." And then uh, they didn't realize that the press was so strong that it crushed the blocks and so like that moment that you see where he screams and like pulls out is a real thing because he almost got his face crushed by it ah it's good cinema it is oh man wouldn't it be crazy if that that actor would have died in that moment it's so crazy crazy yeah and then they would have replaced him with i don't know um who's a good paul mccartney they would have replaced him with Paul McCartney. Uh, I like that you racked your brain for a second, and that's where he settled Paul yeah, McCartney. That's that was fine. it. It's because he's good. another Paul that does music. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they'd retitle the movie. It wouldn't be Phantom of the Paradise anymore. It'd be The Two Pauls. <laughs> yeah. Paul Square. Mm-hmm. be great. Um, oh, speaking of the, the title real quick, um, we, we mentioned way earlier in this conversation uh, the number of really obvious matte paintings in this movie. And, yes. and we'll talk about that again in a second. But... Uh, this movie ran into a couple of legal speed bumps on its way to release, and one of them was uh, in regards to the title. The original title of the movie, I believe, was Phantom of the Fillmore. Uh, the folks who ran the Fillmore did not like that, uh-huh. requested a change. Then the title was just going to be Phantom, which is what Brian De Palma was happy with. Right. Turns out, uh, especially at that time, the Phantom of the Opera people really weren't super on board. And so that's how we ended up with the title that we got. But also, so talking about the map paintings. Yeah. Oh, Also, Marvel... Tried to sue them because of the Phantom. Because of the Phantom. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so these these big matte paintings. So Swan's record label in the movie is called Death Records. Just I don't know. Sounds cool. Right. Uh, but the original name of that record label was Swan Song. Yeah. And that was uh, Led Zeppelin's label, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And so they went fuck you after they had already shot the movie with this logo all over it. Right. So you have these big, really obvious matte paintings now that they had to put in there to cover it up. Mm-hmm. Which like, yes, I, um, I had noticed it and I, I had assumed that it was something like that where, um, cause one death records is yes, very generic. Um, I mean, now you could retrospectively, you know, retroactively be like, it's like death row can swans like, like, um, fuck Suge Knight. Oh fuck. <laughs> oh damn. It was uh, this movie predicted Suge Knight. Um, because Suge Knight, uh, was a bad person. I heard. Yeah. Um, but also, 
uh, yeah, it, I guess they were also, um, they were like, we'll just change it. Cause we don't want to get stuck in litigation for too long and it would delay the movie. Um, but swan song is a very good name. It is. Yeah. Especially cause like the main guys in swan and it like also references like death and stuff. Swan song. So good. Right. Um, why Led Zeppelin gotta be so, so mean. They for a very long time were real, real intense about even just like licensing their music to movies. Like I remember I, I became aware of this when school of rock came out. Uh-huh. And they use, I think they use Immigrant Song in School of Rock at one point. And uh, they had to, like, Jack Black and uh, all the kids basically had to put together this video message directly to the members of the band Led Zeppelin, imploring them to let them use their song in the movie. I think, obviously, since then, it seems like they've chilled out about it a little bit. But for a long time, it's like you had to, you had to really kind of not literally sit down with them, but you had to basically sort of informally, uh, indirectly, metaphorically sit down with them and, and sort of get them to be willing to hear you out as right. far as whether you can use their music or any piece of branding or anything. And I yeah. think, yeah, certainly at the time, which is when, you know, Zeppelin was really like the mid seventies was sort of Zeppelin's like mid to late seventies was they're like, that was the prime. Uh, yeah. I would imagine that they were kind of, yeah, they were uppity. That. Um, yeah, that's the word we'll use. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it, which is crazy because guys, your band name is after is you're named after a, a brand of of like blimps. <laughs> I'm sure that like the blimp company, if they had not exploded and not existed, they would have been like, "Yo, you can't use our name. Fuck you." Yo, we're the blimps. Yeah, bro. They would just be the blimps. Um, yeah, would not have sold anywhere near as well. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so do you have any last thoughts about this movie? Um, okay, okay, a couple of things. One is in regards to the ending of the movie. So the one, it's not a gripe because the movie is what the movie is, and I love this movie, but when I learned what the original ending was, uh, I was a little bummed because to me it feels like the natural culmination of the story that they'd been telling. So in the movie as it as it exists, um, Winslow sort of foils the sort of faux staged wedding. Uh, Philbin is off. Swan is defeated. And Winslow, because he tried to kill himself very melodramatically by stabbing himself in the chest, uh, because he kills Swan, that wound opens up and Winslow himself dies. Sidebar, really odd touch that I like a bunch. And the camera doesn't hold on it for very long. As Winslow's dying, somebody takes his helmet, like a girl in this big chaotic concert sequence, takes his helmet from him and puts it on. And in the giant uh, crowd shot that ends the movie mm-hmm. you could just see her and like they're, she and like the two people around her like they're covered in blood and she's just standing completely still with the the mask on which I just think is metal as fuck uh-huh. uh, but so the, the way it ends is as he's dying Phoenix sort of you could almost argue like as this chaos is happening she sort of snaps out of this sort of career trance she's been in yeah. and sees Winslow and sort of you could say maybe reconnects with him as he dies or at least feels deep sympathy for him as he dies. Yeah. That's the way the movie ends. So the original ending, and this was the ending that, that I think De Palma wanted to go with was that as Winslow dies, he looks to Phoenix, but Phoenix doesn't notice him. Phoenix has the career. She has the adulation. She has the thing that she's been chasing the entire time. Phoenix is this massive beloved star and doesn't even notice 
as Winslow dies. And it's so dark and it's so bleak. And it, to me feels so like the ending of the story that they'd been telling. Right. And I guess is money people, somebody at like towards the last second was like, you got to change this, which is a bummer. Um, and they never shot it, which is the other bummer, like little shop of horrors, which is another movie musical that I think is just, it's just one of the best things. Very famously, shot the ending of the stage play or the you know the stage musical um yeah. which is uh spoilers the the, the heroes lose yeah. uh and they shot it and it just tested so poorly because people were like i don't this made me feel something um and so they reshot a happier ending and it just doesn't the movie's still great with that happier ending but it doesn't track with the the story that they've been telling right narratively or thematically and so What's really wonderful is that because they had shot that ending a handful of years ago, Warner's put out a sort of director's cut Blu-ray where they put the whole movie back together, clean the whole thing up, and it just plays now kind of the, the way it, the story was originally intended to play. So we have that version. I, we don't have the other ending of Phantom of the Paradise so that we can maybe build a different cut of it. Right. Um, I mean, you could effectively like recut it to where as he's dying, you just cut out the scene where she's like, Winslow and then just have her being like woo I'm excited <laughs> just recycle footage from uh, like when she's singing the the ballad yeah 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 since we don't hear her we just hear the crowd like uh huh they just they cut quick so they're just banking on you not really noticing how different the lighting is and stuff yeah yeah, yeah. Um, um, or um, I mean here's the thing with the ending is that the ending that we got allows you to believe that the the cycle has ended right like the yeah the big spell the the like right it's it's broken yeah um which i i'm fine with like the bleak ending where she's like i didn't notice him like it would make sense in that earlier he approaches her and is like it's me winslow and she's like fuck you i'm rich (laughs) um and and now she's like, oh, Winslow. Um, I mean, which you could also take that, like, because we get the footage of her signing a contract. So, like, that moment when she rejected Winslow could have also been a part of her contract. And then now she is essentially, like, broken of that spell because till death do them part. So, like, her contract's broken. His contract's broken. Every contract's broken. And she regains her humanity just in time to see the tragedy of loss and then still be fucking famous as shit. I'm glad that you have Phantom of the Paradise headcanon now. <laughs> that pleases me. I feel like I've done good here. Ah, uh, yeah, you did a good. You did such a good. And and here's the thing. I think Brian De Palma and company did a very good with this movie. Uh, people didn't think so when it came out. Uh, this thing tanked basically everywhere except, interestingly, Paris and Winnipeg, Manitoba. Paris likes that weird shit. It was also so popular in Winnipeg, Manitoba that they have, I believe annually, like Phantom, I think it started as Phantom Palooza. Like they basically have local Phantom of the Paradise festivals yeah. became such a big thing was so beloved uh in that community and that festival became such a fixture of that community last year i think it was just last year uh the director malcolm ingram did a documentary about it. it's called phantom of winnipeg which i have not had a chance to check out but i'm very much looking forward to whenever it i don't know if it's actually available yet but looking forward to seeing it because it it's yeah it's been such a fixture in that community uh, mm-hmm. such a big cult phenomenon in that community since it came out and it's really interesting that it happened to catch on 
in those two places. Right. Did they have to change the name because Led Zeppelin was like, this is too close to Lollapalooza. And so <laughs> Which they're like, <laughs> we have no affiliation with, but we're going to bat for them. They Hell seem yeah. nice. They just love litigation. <laughs> That's their jam. Um, but what did y'all at home think about this movie? Did you enjoy it? Um, what did you think about the music? Uh, did you not enjoy it? What did you think about the music? <laughs> Um, you know, though, I do love, like, we need to find our weirdo community in Canada. We could, but then someone will try to turn us into walruses, so <laughs> I'm good. You, you, you actually, of the two of us, are the one that, I think, travels more frequently, so you might actually end up as walrus boy. Uh, no, I would I would uh, die first. <laughs> you choose to. You just will your body to <laughs> Yep. Um, it, it'll be that scene in... Uh, in Rise of the Sith, Revenge of the Sith, where the robot turns to everyone I know and love, and they're like, he just lost the will to live. He's gonna die. I, I like the idea that you, you get turned into Walrus Boy, and you try to will your body into sweet death, and it doesn't take, but you end up even more mangled than before, and you have to wear a helmet and talk through a Darth Vader voice box. Yep. And you're the walrus of the paradise. And it will be a slam dunk in Canada. Yep. There's yeah. a there's a bunch of folks in Manitoba that I think are exactly the audience for <laughs> what I'm pitching now. I hope so. Um, so if you want to talk to us more about this movie or just stuff in general, you want to recommend things to us, you can do so at Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. Uh, but if you want to talk to us individually, you want to talk to Lex about how much you also grew up with this, and you're from Manitoba, and you are a big fan, uh, fan of the Paradise. You can do so on social media, uh, at Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael. Or if you want to talk to me about beef, just just straight up beef. <laughs> talk to me about beef, uh, the meat or the person. Um, you can do so at Tari J T E U R I J A Y. And we'd like to thank you for joining us this week. We'd like to thank you for joining us as always. Uh, and uh, we hope that you come back again. Until then, this has been the retrospective that is introspective. And now you have a new perspective. And it's that if you take Walrus Boy to Canada, you're going to be rich, son. Yep, that's it. <laughs>